Better Call Paul is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. Hey, everyone. This is Paul Sarker from Better Call Paul. Just wanted to remind you that the show is intended for entertainment purposes only and is not legal advice. I am not your lawyer unless we separately agree for me to represent you. And the views expressed by Mesh and me are solely our own. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Better Call Paul, the show where we discuss the legal and business side behind the scenes of Hollywood, sports, and entertainment. I'm your co-host, Paul Sarker, former Marvel lawyer and current media attorney. And I'm your other co-host, Mesh Lakani, pop culture enthusiast, now new fan of HBO's second largest debut, The Last of Us. I saw this last week. Paul, did you get a chance to watch it yet? I have not got a chance to watch it yet. I guess it would be up my alley. I don't know that it's up Jess's alley, the whole zombie post-apocalyptic vibe, but we loved House of Dragon, which was HBO Max's best show in terms of uh, audience. I'm sure I'd like it, but I just can't find the time right now. Yeah, I mean, just so people understand the debut differences, House of Dragons, obviously built-in fan base with Game of Thrones, the books, etc. 9.9 million people across linear and HBO Max tuned into that. And for The Last of Us, it was 4.7 million, which is the second largest debut. Obviously, they've got a built-in fan base with the game. A lot of good reviews. I mean, this on IMDb, this is the highest rated show of all time above Breaking Bad. It's early, though, but yes. it, It is early. It is early. But let's see if they can continue the momentum. I'll be checking it out this week. But HBO with another win. Good for them. We talked about it, how they're trying to consolidate and focus on aces and investing in shows that are proven successes with large audiences. And they have been restricting a lot of the titles that they're making and pulling things off the platform. But The Last of Us is definitely in their future plans and good debut for it. So I'll hopefully check it out soon. But like I said, zombies... Aren't um, I don't watch a lot of zombie stuff. <laughs> Another win for a streaming company. Netflix blew expectations out of the water. Obviously, I think Wall Street had lowered their expectations, but the last quarter, so Q4, they did 7.6 million subscribers. Wall Street expected them to do 4.5, 4.6 million. And it's the first time that ad tier has been reflected into earnings, although they didn't talk about it specifically, but essentially they're making the bet that Ad tier is going to work well. They feel pretty confident about it. I think Netflix did about $33 billion in revenue in 2022. And from the call, they basically said that we wouldn't invest in ad tier unless we thought it could bring in at least 10% of revenue, which is a big number. And then, of course, one of the bigger news is from that earnings announcement is that Reed Hastings, 25 years later, is stepping down as co-CEO to be executive chairman. He had a hell of a run. Absolutely. I mean... This is one of those things where Reed was a visionary. He's so humble about how it all started. You know, he was an internet entrepreneur guy, software guy. And then he had, I think, $40 late fee on Apollo 13 from Blockbuster and then decided this business model could be better, right? I mean, gyms, you pay a monthly flat fee and you can work out as much or as little as you want. Why don't we have that in content? Why don't we have that in videos? And then he sees YouTube and he pivots Netflix into streaming and he builds a streaming giant. And so I think props to him for coming up with Netflix, even though the way he describes it is sort of obvious, it's an obvious extension of of business models that he saw were working in the market, and he just kind of pivoted it and turned it into a great thing. And I think this is a reflection now that he doesn't necessarily think he is the best person to lead Netflix in the next 25 years, 
which shows a lot of self-awareness. Totally. I mean, he was staunchly opposed to ad tier for a long time. And Greg Peters, who's going to be, who's COO, going to be co-CEO, was sort of the architect of the ad tier. So maybe that's a sign, you know, that they really believe in this ad tier. The stock was up 8.5%. That includes after one of the co-founders steps down. So I think the way they did it was great. Like you said, he's done all he's been able to do to go from I'm mailing you DVDs to let's compete in streaming. And then if you remember, they had that Netflix. Not even compete. Let's let's become streaming. streaming. And then if you remember, they had Quickster where they were going to separate the two businesses and everyone made a big fuss and he immediately went back on it. And I think that also showed that he was listening to not only what Wall Street was saying, but to what customers were saying. You know, they've gotten into gaming. So let's see. It's always good to see like a new blood come in and take over as co-CEO here. So we'll see if Greg Peters can do the job. Now, the warrior wart part of my personality says, does he know something we don't know? Does he see some sort of bottom falling out? And is that why he's picking now? I mean, the stock's already fallen so much from its high, like November 2021. You wonder, has it hit bottom? Has it not? But I was completely taken by surprise when Bob Iger stepped down at Disney February 2020, right before the pandemic. And then like, a couple months into that, you realize, oh, well, maybe he saw something coming, right? Like maybe he was like, this this pandemic is going to be terrible for our businesses and now's right. the time to get out. So I just don't know if what Reed said in the announcement is, hey, all we're doing is making public the sort of way we've been operating internally for a couple of years now. I've been delegating more and more stuff to Greg. So really, this isn't a change. But you wonder, is there something else afoot? Yeah, no, I mean, we've always talked about it. Streaming is getting more and more competitive. Wall Street is becoming a bit more skeptical on production costs and subscriber growth. Apple, they've just announced Ted Lasso season three coming in spring. They've got like a whole new slate of movies and shows like they're coming in pretty hot. There was actually a Timothy Chalamet Apple ad. That's oh, like, the ad. The ad was great. Yeah, it was where everyone. <laughs> yeah, where everyone has something going on with Apple except for Timothy. And, he, and he's joking like I could do that. I could do this. I could do drama. I could do funny. But it's true. Like the joke was, I think Jason Momoa does a cameo in that ad and he says i just finished my my latest apple series where's yours bro yeah it's like what marvel like you know everyone being in a marvel movie or a marvel film or a marvel series like now it's like do you not have an apple deal like come on bro i think they did something similar with john ham last year similar ad campaign so we'll see but yeah ted lasso they haven't announced the date but sometime this spring, spring yeah uh, season three is coming out and, and it's the last season really i didn't know that yeah apparently it was always going to be a, a three season thing Wow. You were about to say that that was a COVID blessing. It was. And it also was sort of, I think, Apple TV's, you know, initial breadwinning series, right? For lack of a better term, that was the series that made people subscribe. Because I think at the time, you know, you could get six months or 12 months of Apple TV if you bought an iPad or an iPhone or a laptop or something, and they were kind of doing that promotional deal. But now they've sort of shortened the promotional window and people buy it for the content. I think Apple's done a pretty good job. And knowing when to call a season, you never know what happens with these things. I mean, Succession's the same thing. They're saying that season four is coming up, but they're saying that it's season five will be the end of it. I think people just want to move on and, and just have a really, really good run. You know, Apple seems to have had some wins here. And I'm excited to see like some of the new shows. I was watching Bad Sisters, which is another Apple show. Pretty decent. Like they're making good stuff. Like to me, Apple feels a little bit like HBO Max in the sense of 
They make quality stuff. They're good at picking. Well, money's no object, right? If you're Apple, like you have a lot of resources (laughs) and you can afford the best talent, the best creatives, the best production executives and make great shows. So good for them. And speaking of the greatest, I just want to do a little shout out to my firm for getting named Media and Entertainment Law Firm of the Year in Law 360, which uh, is a really great recognition, not something that I necessarily expected only because, you know, I've been working so hard for so many years. And it's not a recognition of me, it's recognition of the whole team. But, you know, you work so hard for so many years and it never really gets recognized. But this was nice. I guess it's because my firm has been instrumental in freeing Britney and doing a bunch of music deals and catalog sales and representing a lot of private equity clients in growing their portfolios and monetizing things, especially through a downturn. And we we do litigation, defamation, television, sports, so a ton of different areas. And you know, I'm just a part of a team and we've been working super hard, so it's nice to be recognized. Dude, that's awesome. Congrats. And the firm is Greenberg and Traurig. Greenberg Traurig. I mean, hey, it's kind of badass to be on like, we are the best in media and entertainment. Technically, I think there's like three or four. For, they, they say best, but I think it's a hand. <laughs> it's like five yeah. firms or something. But yeah. still, I mean, it's nice to be on that short list. It's kind of like being nominated for you know, an Academy Award. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But they don't have a winner winner. Right, so right, 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 right. Well, that's awesome, Paul. I mean, look, there's not that many people who are able to provide the insights that you do, especially in a world like entertainment and Hollywood, but also understanding the business behind it. So thank you. Congrats. And uh, let's take a break. And when we get back, we'll talk about live golf. It's back in the news again. All right, Paul. So Live Golf is back. They've achieved a multi-year broadcast and streaming agreement. You want to tell us about who that's with and what's all that about? Absolutely. Anyone that's listening, if, you, if you're if you not familiar with Live, we discussed this extensively in episode 20 in our first season. Live is the competitive upstart golf league funded by a Saudi Arabia. It's actually 93% owned by the Saudi Public Investment Fund. And they've been around for about a year. And one of the things they've been doing is paying these huge signing bonuses to lure PGA Tour golfers away. So PGA Tour golfers were trying to play on both tours. And then the PGA said, no, it's one or the other. You can't play on the PGA Tour if you're going to be playing live events. And so we talked about that in episode 20. The other thing is they're changing up the formula a little bit. They have a 14 tournament season. Each tournament is three rounds as opposed to four, which the PGA is for. There is no cut. So anyone that enters a tournament is bound to win some money. Even the last place finisher is going to get some money. Whereas in PGA, half the players in the tournament that don't make the cut don't make anything. So there's no necessarily guaranteed comp in any event if you're a PGA member. Their first season of Live, games were aired commercial-free, subscription-free, so free to the user on YouTube. And YouTube is the largest ad-supported streaming platform in the world. I think, you know, 2.6 billion active users or something like that. And what The Live has announced recently, I guess last week, Greg Norman announced it as a momentous occasion or a momentous day for the league, is that their YouTube deal is over. Now they've had, as you said, a multi-year deal with the CW network. So CW, which is a broadcast network, they own a bunch of stations, they own and operate a bunch of stations. It's majority owned by Nexstar, which we actually talked about in episode 21 last year. Each tournament is three days. The first day is going to be available on the CW app. 
And the second two days are going to be on broadcast. And they've sort of advertised this as a great deal because it's multi-year. CW reaches 120 million homes in the U.S. It is one of the major six broadcast networks. And all of those things are true. But I don't know if it's a great deal in the sense that you know, they're not getting a rights fee. They have to cover production costs. And then it looks like they're splitting ad revenue. What's a rights fee? And we've talked about this a couple of times. So major popular sports with a huge fan base can command rights fees for broadcast rights. In fact, that's a big part of the economic pie for football, baseball, basketball, soccer, hockey, NASCAR, PGA golf. So for example, we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the NFL gets maybe 10 to $11 billion a year in rights fees for NBC, CBS, Fox, ABC, ESPN, Amazon to have the right to air games. So they have exclusive rights to air whatever game they have during a window for a certain period of time, whether it's a year, a couple of years. And so NBA, NHL, baseball, soccer, and football all get rights fees because they have big audiences. And so networks can sell the advertising in the games for a lot of money. They can draw customers to their product because of the pull of sports. Not every sport though gets rights fees. And in certain sports, you actually have to pay for the right to be carried by a network. And those are sort of deals that if you're an emerging sport, like we talked about pickleball or other sort of like up and coming, perhaps even competitive football leagues like the XFL and other upstart basketball leagues like Summer League and things like that, they may pay for the right to be on TV. And because they realize that it helps them grow their audience, it helps them expand their brand and potentially sell ads. So there's kind of a power dynamic between like the haves and the have nots, like the sports at the top of the food chain can command billions of dollars in rights fees. And the sports that are sort of up and coming, they're paying for the right to be on television. And it doesn't sound like Live is paying. It sounds like Live is just covering its production costs and splitting whatever ad revenue is generated. It's interesting because like, what I read about this, they were in talks with Fox Sports would make more sense from like a branding point of view. Like when I look at this, I think about Live Golf got a okay deal in the sense of they still have to pay for production costs. This is just a way for them to get more exposure, but it's the CW app. And now I get it that you have 120 million households. I don't think of like sports and CW. Like now you have to either be like, okay, I'm downloading the CW app and I'm going to use it for what? Just to watch live as opposed to I already have Fox Sports or I have another Fox app or I'm already watching like NBC Sports or whatever it might be. When I think of CW, man, I think of Smallville and like One Tree Hill. I don't think of golf. Gossip Girl. Gossip Girl. Have they ever had a sports? This is their first sports their deal. Their first sports deal. Okay, well, maybe that's pivot for them. Well, as we discussed last week, or sorry, not last week, last year, Nextar owns CW. They bought them last year, majority control. It was previously owned by Paramount and Warner. That's right. Warner, as we talked about, you know, as the, as the M&A twists and turns, Warner was trying to unload assets after its deal with Discovery. So... They basically sold off all but 12.5% of their ownership in CW. Paramount kept 12.5%. So they're minority owners in CW, but Nexstar is a controlling owner. And I think this is a smart deal for Nexstar. We'll, we'll talk about what the sort of live side of it in a second. 
But if you're Nexstar, sports rights are valuable. They're getting them essentially for free. They didn't announce how long the deal is, but they're trying to rebrand CW as to like a TBS junior or a TNT junior. Like we have sports, we have primetime content. We're more broadly appealing so they can grow their audience and they want to turn it into a national network. And one way to do that is with sports rights. And they're also not breaking the bank to get it. So I think it could be a really smart deal for them. That makes sense. But we don't know how popular Liv will be. CW is not Nielsen rated outside of primetime weekday hours. So we won't necessarily even know how many people are watching live events on the weekends or through the app. But, you know, if you're Nexstar and seeing how Sinclair, one of their competitors, has been really struggling with overpaying for sports rights and buying the RSNs to get sports rights for essentially no risk is is pretty good. The other thing about CW is Nexstar doesn't own all the stations. They only probably own about a third of them. And so depending on where you live, like if you live in Pittsburgh, you might get a different signal than someone... You know, it's based on DMA, but based on your DMA, you may get a different CW channel or CW signal than I get in New York City. And I might get live events and you may not because it's really the station owner that has the ability to sort of select what programming they put through in certain windows of time. So there's no guarantee that all the CW stations air these live games, but they may. And if live is popular, then they will because then they'll be able to sell the ads for more. Right. To answer your question about Live, is these things are always an auction. So Live has an executive in charge of sort of monetizing these rights, Will Stager. And I'm assuming if you're an executive and it's a very small industry, the people that are doing these sports rights deals, there's you know there's ESPN, ABC, ES, Fox, CBS, NBC. There's Apple, YouTube, Google, and a host of others. But it's not necessarily the biggest universe. And so my thinking is that there was probably some sort of auction or he made proposals to a bunch of executives at these sports networks. And this was probably the best deal that he could get because the others were like, maybe, as you mentioned, the Fox Sports FS1, FS2 deal, maybe they wanted to get paid. Maybe they were saying, well, we'll carry you if you pay us. And this was a deal that was free or just ad revenue sharing. We don't know exactly why it was the chosen deal, but it seems to me like this was the best deal they probably had on the table. Yeah, well, let's see how it works out for them and whether people tune in. I think that'll be the interesting thing. How big is Liv's audience and how much could it grow? Right. And they didn't announce how many years, which often they don't announce that. It's actually the exception when someone like the NFL says, hey, we're doing a 10 or 11 year deal because we don't know when it expires. It could be a three-year deal, it could be four, five, six. It just said multi-year deal. Yeah. But if the live, like you said, if it grows in popularity, let's say they sign Tiger Woods in the next year, that could lead to a lot of viewership. And if CW is getting rights and it stays essentially free for the term of the deal, then that's a great win for Nexstar. I like this from like a Nexstar perspective. It's like, it's always interesting when people do like, is this a good business decision? And, you know, I mean, rebrands happen all the time. I'm not rebranding like CW, but to your point, like you could tune into TNT to watch basketball, but you could also watch like one of your crime shows as well. So does that become for CW? So we'll pay close attention to it. I guess good for them, good for all parties involved. And let's see how popular Liv gets. You want to see one, one ironic thing though, right? So... PGA, which is Liv's main competitor, has a broadcast rights deal with CBS. So Paramount, which owns 12.5% of CW through that deal we talked about, actually benefits 
if Liv does well through their ownership in CW, but they also pay PGA rights fees to carry the games on CBS. So it's like a very... Little hedge. It's a very confusing thing. I mean, I guess if golf is popular, they win on both ends. Exactly. So in some sense, they're like Coke and Pepsi. If they're both doing well, then they all overall win, right? It's not like one wins at the expense of the other. If golf does well and Liv has a huge audience, then CW is going to make more revenue and Paramount's ownership in CW is going to be worth more. And they're still going to be doing their deals with the PGA. Nifty, nifty business moves by Nexstar. So let's uh, take a break, Paul. We'll get back and we'll talk about the FTC and why they're involved with the change in non-compete agreements in Hollywood. So, Mesh, this is a hyper-technical legal point, but the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, released a proposal a couple weeks ago in January that they think all non-compete clauses should basically be unenforceable. And not only that, if you have one in your current contract, it should be rescinded, and you shouldn't ask people to agree to them if you're an employer. And so I think we can break this down step by step. Yeah. Let's first discuss what a non-compete clause is and the pros and cons around it. And then what the FTC does, which is, I think a lot of people don't realize, you know, they protect consumers and they can enforce antitrust law. And then we'll see, you know, whether we think non-competes are net positive or should be abolished. How do non-competes work? I think the best would be given an example of something that we would understand, whether it's like a Hollywood executive or even something that you've worked with in the past. So let's say you and I had a deal and you were like, Paul, if you quit Better Call Paul, you can't host another legal entertainment podcast for the next three years. Right. That would be something along the lines of, you know, I gave you your start with Better Call Paul. I invested resources in marketing the show and growing the audience. And now we have all these fans and you became this quasi-celebrity, quote-unquote, we'll see, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> and, and now uh, I'm not going to like let you go to Spotify and do the same show, right? So right, something right, along right, those right. lines. Or let's say you're, you know, you, we talked about James Gunn, Peter Safran is like the head of the DC film universe. Could he go and do the same thing if Kevin Feige stepped down? Could he go to Marvel and do the same thing? So these are provisions, not non-compete clauses or provisions and agreements that employers often request or require their employees to agree to, which essentially limit them from after the agreement expires or is terminated, it limits the employee from going to work for a competitor. And it basically says you can't work for a competitor, however you define that, within either a geographic radius or a period of time or both. They're generally anti-competitive. And because of that, judges and courts are not really in favor of them. And so they're construed narrowly. So the restriction has to be reasonable in scope and time and place in order for it to be enforceable, period. But in certain states like California, they're not enforceable at all. And California sort of on, as we said, the cutting edge of a lot of things uh, like environmental legislation and privacy legislation. And and they don't think non-competes have any place in contracts because California's view is that they're anti-competitive and they hinder the free operation of a labor market and they allow employers to have this unwarranted leverage 
over their employees. And overall, it, it results in worse working conditions, less innovation, lower salaries. So in California, if you have a non-compete clause in your contract, it's probably not enforceable if it's governed by California law. However, if we're, if we're governed by New York law or Texas law or Florida law, it may be enforceable. And so what the FTC is trying to do, in essence, is take the California principle and just make it apply to the whole country. Okay. But there's going to be opposition. We're an entertainment podcast, but it's not necessarily limited to entertainment. I mean, these clauses can come up if you sell a business, if you hire a vendor to render services for you. There might be something about like poaching their employees once, you know, let's say you're paying someone to paint your house. There may be a provision there that says, well, you can't hire my best painter and pay him because that takes away your profit margin. Or if you sell your business, you'd say, well, you can't start a competing business in this area for three years because part of the reason I'm paying you is for the right to conduct this business. So some sort of quasi-exclusivity. And traditionally, companies that want these clauses say that it gives them more of a reason to invest in their employees because if you're training people, giving them highly specialized skills and strategic knowledge, and they have competitive information about sort of the future plans of your company or how you do your business, that makes them targets for being poached. And then, you know, if they could leave at the drop of a hat and without any sort of disincentive, then you're less likely to invest in their growth because you don't want people to just leave. The risk there would be like, you could invest a ton of money into them. They have all the secrets and then they could still just leave and then in two weeks be working at your biggest competitor with your entire playbook. That is the risk. I, I don't buy it fully because you can still... Like non-compete clauses are separate from like an NDA or a confidentiality okay. clause. So you Fair. could still have something in your deal that says you can't use our trade secrets. You can't use our confidential information. But how do you unlearn something? Like if there's something in your head about how a business works, how can you not use that when you go work for a competitor? So I sure. get the strategic information that's really valuable. But if it's something like customer lists or actual proprietary trade secret information. I mean, you could, in theory, have a legal remedy through a non-disclosure agreement or a confidentiality provision in your agreement without needing a non-compete. It's really more about like talent of that person. Like this person executes really well. Maybe they hire really well. They just have a really good vision. And to your point, like if you're running a company, you're like, if this person is really truly talented, I want them to stay here. I'm going to do whatever I can to make them happy here, whether that's in the form of salary or promotion or culture or whatever that might be. You know, the non-competes, every time I've always heard of a non-compete, it does rub me the wrong way. Like I'm always like, uh, that's such a like cheap way to keep someone from doing their thing. I, I've never really liked it, but I, Paul, we talked about this before. There's an example where this actually happened with Netflix. Before the FTC announced this, Netflix was hiring and poaching talent from Viacom and Fox, and, and they went into a legal battle over it, correct? Yeah, no, I think this was pre-pandemic, in fact, when Netflix was sort of aggressively growing back when their stock price was, you know, basically, you know, it was in the hockey stick part of the curve, going yeah. straight up and up. They were hiring executives. And, you know, I don't think it's any secret. When I was working at Disney, we all knew that Netflix paid top of the market. And so they were hiring executives from Viacom and Fox. And those executives had non-compete clauses. So Viacom and Fox sued to enforce them. I don't think Netflix prevailed. I'm not exactly sure if they were settled or not. But yes, these are provisions that come up and, and more in the executive context. But they're also, as far as litigation, but 
they've also been in sort of rank and file entry level employee agreements because they're kind of in the form template. And for these lower level sort of entry level positions, I do see the reason to get rid of them, right? Because if someone doesn't have any negotiating leverage and they're kind of a low level employee, then that clause seems like it's more of a penalty than an actual way to protect something that's valuable to the company. It just seems like you're trying to restrict their mobility and keep them at the level they're at instead of allowing them to sort of move up and go to a competitor. So I think the clauses can be overused. And I think at a certain level, they they probably shouldn't be enforceable. But if you're talking about executives who, who have like billions of dollars of strategic information in their heads, and there's really no way to prevent them from using it because maybe you can't prove that they violated a confidentiality duty. I can see why it might make more sense in that setting and might be justifiable. So we'll see. I mean, like I said, the FTC just proposed this a couple weeks ago, and there's typically a 60-day period. So employers, companies can provide their comments and why they think this is a bad rule. Even if it does get passed, it'll probably get passed in some modified form. And then even if that gets passed, the Supreme Court is ultimately going to be the one that decides whether this is a legitimate exercise of the FTC's authority or not, or whether it exceeds their authority. But the FTC's position is like, hey, we're one of the government arms that enforces competition law and protects consumers. And one of our main objectives is to literally be the civil antitrust enforcement arm And if these provisions are fundamentally anti-competitive, then that's an antitrust issue. So that's where they're getting their jurisdiction. So this is going to take months then. Yeah, I mean, the the comment period will probably go through mid-March. You know, this thing could turn political. And with Biden, and he's he's a very pro-worker president, but the House has just turned more conservative and the Supreme Court is more conservative. So, you know, it's going to be a process. I don't know exactly how long it will take, but I would be surprised if there wasn't opposition. Really interesting. Thanks for breaking that down. And like I said, in California, they're not enforceable now. So that's, it won't be a change to California if the law goes through. Right, right. But, it's more um, nationwide. It, it will sort of make it national law. Paul, thanks as always for breaking that down. That's why you're the number one media and entertainment law firm in the country. Congrats again to you. And that's our show for this week, folks. Look forward to seeing you next week. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast, Apple, Spotify, wherever you choose to listen. Instagram at Better Call Paul, the podcast. Follow me at Twitter at Mesh Lakani. And keep your eyes peeled for our YouTube channel coming up soon. YouTube channel soon. Better Call Paul is produced and edited by Valentino Rivera and assistant producer Lisa Sanders. Have a great week. Thanks, everyone.